Welcome back, my good-looking listeners. Laszlo Montgomery here. Something special for you this time. I am so thrilled and honored to have on my little China History Podcast program, all the way from the former capital of the Qing, Ming, and Yuan Dynasty, the great city of Beijing, Dr. Jeremiah Jenny, who needs no introduction, so I won't give one. Lao Da, welcome to the CHP. Hey, well, thank you, Laszlo. Thank you for having me on. Big, huge a fan of the CHP for many years. It's one of my favorite walking around town podcasts. It tends to fit that space very nicely between going to the subway, going through multiple checks, proving that I'm alive, proving that I'm disease free and getting on the subway. Each episode fills that void nicely and, and it's a great way to kind of spend my uh, morning commute. Oh, perfect. How is it that after all these years of knowing each other, we still haven't met in person? When I came to Beijing in September 2013, you were sick with something, and I came back again. I don't know when yeah. it was, but you weren't in town. And all the other times I came to Beijing were all these day trippers for uh, on business and didn't call anyone. Am I ever going to get the chance to meet you in person? Well, you know, at the moment, as we're taping this, there is a, a relatively large ocean and you know, multiple Chinese warships sitting between you and I. So uh, right now it's not very convenient, but there may come a day when we're in fact in the same hemisphere, continent, city, district. And I, I look forward to that day of hanging out with you and uh, talking about stuff over some refreshments and that kind of thing. Hopefully on the beach of some Southeast Asian destination. Uh, I'm going to hold you to that. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Okay, great. So your manager said, I only got 90 minutes with you, and everything after that is billed by the minute. So let's just jump right in. The Forbidden City, that had to be one of the first topics I wrote down back in the early summer of 2010 when I was planning the CHP. 12 years, tons of requests, and I still haven't done it. And now I'm glad. I reached out to your people about maybe having you on the show to talk about it, mortgage one of my investment properties to pay for this opportunity, and wow, I'm, I'm excited for this episode. So let's uh, talk about the Forbidden City. Give me the, the, the lay of the land. What part of Beijing makes up the Forbidden City, or the, the palace complex in general, and where is it in the big picture? Sure. Well, you know, one of the cool things, if, if in Lazo you ever decide, you know, post-podcast to found your own mid-sized Chinese dynasty based on the experience you've had researching history. One of the cool things that you don't have to worry too much about is the layout of your capital, because there's a basic plan for how you're supposed to do it, right? You know, you got this, you know, more or less square rectangular walls. You've got gates at strategic or at least, you know, um, cosmologically important uh, intervals. And then in the middle, you have some kind of palace. In the southern, south of the city somewhere, you have a temple of heaven. But yet the walls, you got the palace in the middle, temple of heaven in the south. After that, everything else is just, you know, a problem for your decorator. So in the, his, so in the inner city of Beijing, the historic city of Beijing, as it was defined by its walls, at least from the 15th century to the 20th century, the Forbidden City was more or less in the, in the, close to the center of, of that city. Although in the Ming and Qing, the late Ming and Qing periods, the city was kind of divided into two halves. So ba so the Forbidden City is inside the section we think of as the inner city. It's, it's right downtown, right in the middle. You can't miss it. You just kind of ask the big picture of Mao where it is. And he's like, it's behind me. And there it is. 
Yeah, I got to visit it for my first time in back in 1980. That must have been a real trip. Wasn't very crowded. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, not like now. The, the, the first time I visited it, you know, it has a couple of different names, right? It's the Forbidden City, or you know, in Chinese, Zijinshan, which some people will argue the exact translation of it. It tends to refer to things like the color purple and the North Star, because, of course, as the emperor sits on the earth, all revolves around him. Polaris in the heavens, or as we call it, Polaris, you know, it looks like the stars revolve around it. So it kind of refers to the placement of the forbidden city on earth, where the North Star fits in the grand firmament in, in Chinese cosmology. And, of course, there's also this idea that Jin, you know, could mean celestial, it could mean forbidden, but for the most part, you know, that was the old name of it, at least in the Ming and Qing periods. But of course, no one calls it that anymore, right? If you go to Beijing, when you go to Beijing today, almost everyone refers to it either as the Palace Museum or the Old Palace, Gugong. And I, it must have been like my first week or two in China, at least in Beijing back in 2002, went to the, this place. I want to see the Forbidden City and I'm walking around. And I'm like, so, you know, in my best Chinese, where is, you know, the Forbidden City? And everyone's keeping, look, looks at me and is like, do you mean like the old palace, Gugong? I'm like, no, no, I don't. I mean the Forbidden City. And I'm asking like five, six people. I'm just like, you know, haranguing strangers in the street. Like, how could you not know where the Forbidden City is? It didn't, isn't this where the emperors live for like, you know, all that time? Finally, one person, a very kind older gentleman, just kind of physically took me and turned me around to face the giant red walls. He's like, the Forbidden City is the old palace. The old palace is the Forbidden City left unstated, you idiot American. And I'm like, oh. And then I walked inside and it was all cool. So give me an idea of the scale of this. It's, what is it, the largest palace in the world? How many rooms, buildings? What's the scale of this? It is definitely one of the largest palace structures in the world. And it's certain, And there's some question about how you calculate this, but it's one of the largest wooden structures on Earth as well. It's roughly about a kilometer or so, just a little bit less, from north to south and about 700, 750 meters east to west. So it occupies a pretty large footprint in the center of the city. Although if you compare it to the size of some of the other imperial residences around Beijing, particularly the ones we think of as the summer palaces, um, you know, those are actually quite a bit, quite a bit larger, although most of those are made up of garden spaces and landscaping waterways as opposed to actual build in the past, actual buildings. The number of rooms, I mean, everyone, I think most people have heard the old story. There's 9,999 rooms. Be yeah, because like, you know, heaven has 10,000 rooms and the emperors were, of course, all, you know, malignant narcissists, but they didn't want to build a house bigger than heaven. So they kind of capped it at 9,999. Some tour guides will say 9,999 and a half. Uh the some of the cur more recent curators like uh, Shan Jixiang uh, has has actually they've complained to kind of do surveys of the whole complex and the numbers they come up with actually are around like pretty big it's not quite ten thousand but it's like in the high eights I think I think under Shan Jixiang it was like in the low nine thousands but the key is they're not counting rooms like we would count rooms in like Versailles. What they're counting, it's not a space as defined by four walls. It's a space defined by like four columns because the columns are what does all the heavy lifting in the architecture. So it's the space between four kind of fork or beam and bracket 
uh, fixtures, but basically between four columns. So you can look into the one of the largest structures, you know, the Hall of Supreme Harmony, and it says it's got you know twenty something rooms inside. You look inside, and it's like no, nah, it's just like one big space with all these columns everywhere, like a hotel ballroom. But what that's because what's being counted is the space between those columns. And I always think about that. When you think about the importance in, of, in Western architecture, it's the walls that do a lot of the lifting. It's the walls that define spaces. But in the imperial palaces here, it's the columns that do all the heavy lifting. The walls are just basically to keep, you know, to separate spaces and to kind of keep the wind and rain out. And so it just makes sense that that's what's emphasized when you're counting spaces as opposed to maybe in the West. I know this is a huge generalization, but in the West, we kind of count the spaces based on what's important to us architecturally. And so... Let's talk about that usurper, the Yongle Emperor. <laughs> Why did he want to move the capital from Nanjing to Beijing? And in what were the years it was built? Let's talk about that. Zhu Di with his oversized ego. You, you have covered this admirably in some of your in some of your episodes on the early Ming. So perhaps it won't be necessary to rehash the whole Zhu Di. Um, why doesn't my daddy love me? Crisis, and of course the Zhu uh, family. Pol, you know, strategy for dealing with interpersonal conflicts in a family generally involves barbecuing a nephew. So we'll, we'll kind of skip over that. But, you know, in the usurpation, um, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why Judy, when he becomes the Yongle emperor, decides to move the capital up to Beijing. I mean, part of it, of course, is that he kind of sacked the dynastic capital, the primary dynastic capital in Nanjing. So at this point, you know, I've got to rebuild it somewhere. And some of the theories are that, for example, there were still a lot of people who were not totally on board with the whole Judy usurping the throne from his nephew thing. A lot of them were still based in the south, but up in the north where Judy had spent the last, you know, what, almost 20 years, you know, guarding his father's frontier from the, you know, those pesky Mongols. Uh, that's where his power base was. So, you know, it's kind of this thing with like, I'm going to put my capital or my primary capital up here where my power base is. And if any of you officials down there want to have a conversation about this, you're more than welcome to come up and speak to me with all my guys at my back. I think there's also a practical purpose too. Judy is a pretty, I mean, whatever you say about how he became the emperor, he was a pretty talented military official, wouldn't you say? I mean, a military strategist. And I think one of the challenges he found with having the capital in Nanjing was the really stretched lines of command and control between the capital and the very important northern frontier. And so, you know, I think that also kind of it, it made it easier to keep an eye on what was going on up there. So I think there's a, a couple of reasons for him to decide to move the capital up there. Of course, once he did it, he had to build all that stuff. He, you know, he took the old footprint of the, you know, Kublai Khan's capital, you know, Kambalakh. And then he, you know, his, his officials design a, a city that's kind of laid on top of that footprint with some minor, very, very um, modifications. You know, the wall, the northern wall is kind of brought in a little bit. The Forbidden City, they believe, is more or less on the same spot where Kublai Khan's palace was. There's been some archaeological um, research being done on that. Uh, but, you know, he had, to, he had to create this new palace pretty much from scratch. And it took... You know, the, the story is it took, you know, nearly 14 years from 1406 to 1420. And what I, it's interesting about that, I was talking with a scholar who does kind of Gugong or Forbidden City Studies. He said, you know, for the first part of that, first 10 years, the, the, there wasn't a lot of construction in the beginning. It was all about just getting the materials in place, you know, all the lumber, all the stone, everything that was needed, all the people, just kind of getting them logistically in place. And then, of course, 
the palace began they began constructing the palace and so it was a pretty amazing effort i mean the stories are a million laborers, a hundred thousand kind of supervisors, craftsmen, architects, artisans, you know, things like that. Um, certainly an impressive building project. But, you know, the, the Ming Dynasty, especially in the early years, they, they were, you know, they, they proved what was possible if you had an endless supply of cheap non-union labor. I mean, they were the Jeff Bezos of, the, you know, the early modern world. So, is that true that the, when they did the demolition of the Yuan Palace, that they created that hill out of whatever they tore down? Is that Coal Hill or, or is that Jingshan Park? Jingshan, yeah. In any kind of construction project in the, in the capitals, and this goes back even before the Ming, you know, you're, you're excavating areas and a lot of times that debris, whether it's dirt, whether it's parts of old structures, was often used to create kind of other landscapes. So, you know, you dig up a place, you, you dredge a lake for your garden and you use that dredge to kind of create a hill overlooking your garden. And Jingshan was an example of this. It, it probably, the Ming era, while it wasn't the first era to use or kind of, you kind of sculpt a hill in that particular spot, but it does seem like they were the ones who kind of made it into its final form that you see today. And that solves two purpose. That solves two challenges. Like on one hand, you know, as we all know, like in, in, it may be a cliche, but it's, it's there, you know, feng shui, it blocks the baleful influences from the North, right? It balances out the waterway that flows through the front of the palace. It's all of that stuff. But the, you know, I mean, also on a, practical level it's like you know they're again as you said they're demolishing a palace they're digging and they're excavating it's all kinds of debris and it's like hey mr leo where do we put all this dirt and stuff and the old mongolian crap and like well stick it out back and so of course that also solves that problem too i uh read was it last year or the year before i don't know pre-covid that they had actually found the yuan palace underneath the Gukong and they were that there was some excavation going on to try and uncover some of it and that's going to be a very tricky uh thing to excavate yeah i'd heard the same thing i'd have to look up the article where they were talking it was big news for like a day and and then it just like no i never heard anything again i think it's one of those things uh laszlo where like they it was always assumed, I think, that it was that the palace kind of they over they were kind of overlapped each other somehow. But the idea was like how to prove that. And the story is, and I'd have to I'd have to go back and look at the article. But it was like they were excavating, doing it was either for public works, like they were actually digging something as part of like the modern structure, or it was part of an actual excavation, archaeological research. But they had kind of dug down through all the layers because you know throughout the Forbidden City. The, the bricks that the, you stand on go down about at least like 14, 15 layers. And they go in different directions to make it, sometimes they go east-west, sometimes they go north-south to make it hard to tunnel into or out of the palace. Anyway, the, they were going down through all these layers that are clearly like Qing, modern Qing, Ming, and then went down a little bit further and they had hit some other stone, as I, as I understand it. And that was thought to be part of the foundations of Kublai Khan's palace, which gave some confirmation to the you know, it's the idea of like the theoretical layout of uh, Kambalak. Wild. Are there any good architectural or cultural facts or stories about the way it was constructed? I mean, just the idea of being able to mobilize that many people. You know, you think about some of the building projects under the Ming Dynasty and, you know, part most of what we think of as the Great Wall, um, at least as it exists today, the Forbidden City, you know, the, the walls of Beijing, which, of course, 
you know, a hundred years ago and for most of Beijing's history, people, when they came to Beijing, they didn't talk as much about the palace or the temple of heaven. They talked about these amazing city walls and massive gates. All of that required just an, a, a level of logistics, planning, supervision and organization. Uh, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And so, you know, I, I, you think back at these at these projects and it's just it's just um, I, I'm, I personally am kind of amazed that they, they were able to do so much in such a short amount of time. Of course, once they finished building the palace and everyone was ready to move in and they opened the doors and the emperor's like, OK, where's the place I'm supposed to sit for the grand ceremony? It's like this is the main hall. He's like, excellent. Let me just step inside for a moment. And I'm not sure it happened just as he was about to step inside, but the timing was pretty coincident, was a little bit ironic. Uh, lightning struck the uh, main hall and it burned down almost immediately upon uh, being ready for use. And of course, if you are a uh, cosmologically minded official from that era and you believed in things like the mandate of heaven, which you've talked about so eloquently on your podcast, and you have an emperor that many people, at least in the back of their mind, if not actively saying it, was possibly maybe, but certainly was a usurper. You know, these are things that you can interpret in many different ways, but many of them interpreted in a sort of like heaven is displeased. Those people who spoke up about it generally found themselves in nine generations of their family executed. But it's hard to kind of miss the symbolism. And it's and, you know, his son, Judy's son, uh, from what I understand, also was not a fan and was even getting ready to kind of shift the whole thing back to Nanjing for for reasons. And uh, his his reign was relatively short, so the plan never never came to pass. Yeah, the uh, Hall of Supreme Harmony isn't that was the highest point. Yeah, it's it's I, I can't, I'm trying to think of the name in the Ming Dynasty because that the, the 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 name Hall of Supreme Harmony was a later. Uh, name, but yeah, it's that basically it's that it's it's the earlier incarnation of a hall. I mean, one of the things when you go to the Forbidden City, right? As you know, a lot of what you see today is, of course, relatively relatively recent. Most of it's from like the 18th century or 17th century and after. Part of that is, you know, the Forbidden City used to burn down with shocking regularity. I mean, fire. You know, people. It's a it's a huge wooden palace with most with you know with lanterns and incense burners and charcoal braziers. There was a pretty sophisticated system of fire alarms, and there were you know iron or bronze vats everywhere for for water to put out fires. But of course, you know, stuff happens. So you, there was a constant process of rebuilding, and also not even when things were destroyed by fire. The way the palace evolved, the buildings weren't meant to be there forever. It's the space, it's the site that's important. The actual structures are kind of, you know, they're meant to be replaceable. And so throughout that, throughout the years, of course, this meant that these buildings are constantly being renewed, constantly being uh, replaced and recycled. And I think that's a big part of uh, kind of the, the story there, too. So the so the hall that we see today, in the Hall of Supreme Harmony, of course, is, is a an incarnation of an iteration of an iteration um, that is bequeathed to us in the in the present day. And, and you know, it's probably not too, it's the world's largest or one of the world's largest wooden structures, but it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that your average English country village probably has a greater number of authentic pre-16th century wooden structures than the Forbidden City does. What about the materials that were used to build the palace? There were lots of, lots of hardwoods, lots of nanmu. What... Uh, what was up with that? Most of the columns that you see when you visit, you're seeing these amazing buildings and these structures are held up by these columns we talked about earlier. These columns are cut from individual trees. 
And so one of the challenges becomes the same challenge that, say, shipbuilders had in the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century and many other parts of the world where you had to find very specific trees of a certain height, strength, width, all this kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, the, the lumber and the materials, this is one reason why, you know, this, this idea that it took so long to get everything together, a lot of this was being brought from very far away, you know, from forests that were scattered throughout the empire. Much of the, some of the stone um, also came from far away, but a lot of the stone too came from quarries that are in what's today Hebei or, or just south of Beijing. But even so, you're moving stone and you know, lumber is, you, know, you can float it down rivers, you can float it uh, along canals. Stone, you know, there's limits to what you can do no matter how many guys you can bring to the project. So a lot of the stone had to be um, very carefully planned how you would move these huge blocks from the quarries to the city and installed. And in some cases, uh, you know, one of the one of the stories is that for some of the largest blocks, they they did it in the winter time by pushing it along frozen surfaces. Even in some cases, flooding roadways to create new frozen surfaces. So the, the all these materials were very specially either sourced um, or or brought in. And you know, the bricks that are used. You know, some of these bricks were made in Beijing. Some of these bricks came from the southern part of China, where they had special clay that could be fired and refired. So it was a, you know, we talk about the, you know, the organization of this. You know, it's a it's a building project on such a massive scale, and of course, you need to have people managing all of this, like deliveries and inventory and storage and. You know, that's, that's one of the things where I think sometimes when we when I walk around the Forbidden City, you know, yeah, it's a big, huge space and there's lots of cool buildings. Great. But I'm like, yeah, the, the ability to put this together and to keep it together and to keep repairing it you know, for for nearly 600 years is, you know, is, or it's a little over 600 years is a is a pretty remarkable thing. Do we remember who the like the general contractor was? Was there any one person who is really, nobody's, we don't remember anybody. We certainly don't remember the workers or the craftsmen, but was there one guy who was the guy who really built it in the 1420s? Well, I mean, we don't really remember like the workers or the craftsmen per se. I mean, we, we generally, there are some of the architects. Um, there's a guy named uh, Kwai Xiang, I believe is one of the names, but there were other people who were involved as well in the project and their names have been mm. recorded. Uh, but you know, the guy whose job it was to like lay all the bricks throughout the forbidden city and like, Hey, good job dear. Now do that 14 more times. Uh, yeah. His name goes unrecorded. Although I, I guess it was, you know, he, uh, he probably had some choice quotations that, that, you know, would have been worth writing down at the time. I bet. Any noteworthy historical events that happened inside the Forbidden City during the Ming? Anything that sticks out other than the lightning strike uh, in 1424? Well, I mean, you know, this is the stuff that TV dramas are made of, you know, Laszlo. I mean, just, you know, go, you turn on the, go through the various streaming uh, options on Chinese TV and you'll see any number of palace dramas, most of them involving, you know, dashing princes and, uh, princesses and maids and scheming concubines and you know all this stuff it's it's there's a lot of, I mean this is one of the things about the history in China as you know is that people here it's part of the pop culture so there's all these kind of dramatic tales but of course a lot of that 
comes from, you know, Yeshur, like the wild histories, the apocryphal stories. But there's, you know, as you know, there are some good ones out there. I mean, you had the Ming emperors particularly. I mean, you know, Judy, again, usurper, not a bad emperor, right? But as you have covered in your podcast, his descendants left something to be desired. A mixed group. You know, I remember the Ming dynasty was the dynasty that misplaced an emperor out in the steppe. I mean, that's not, you know, that's not good. And then you get into the 16th century and, you know, you have like the judging emperor who was all into his Taoist rituals, right, as you've covered. And then, you know, his idea of like trying to extend his life and was involved in some, I believe the technical historical term, the one we use in scholarship is uh, some pretty weird, funky shit. And part of that was inflicted, uh, inflicted um, it, on his concubines. And of course, in one there is a great story where his concubines kind of got together to try to solve their problem by assassinating their emperor using very uh, complicated plans like, hey, honey, tonight, let's tie you up a little bit. And of course, they did, starting with his neck. They weren't successful, as the story goes, but the emperor was so freaked out. At the time, the main imperial residence was the... Now, again, like if you go through the halls, there's three halls. They're in what's called the outer court. They are matched along the very central axis of the Forbidden City by three halls that are in the inner court. The hall where the emperor lived was the inner court counterpart to the hall of... what became the Hall of Supreme Harmony in the outer court. But this particular emperor, according to the story, was so freaked out by this whole event that he pretty much never set foot in this hall again. And, you know, that's that's one of many of these kind of tales of uh, intrigue, sexual misconduct, all kinds of things that would ordinarily interest a human resources department. But of course, if your human resources department is staffed by eunuchs, they don't really handle complaints very well. They're like, dude, you've got a complaint? Like, look at me. Do you want me to pull down my pants? Like, I've got a human resource issue right here. So, you know, we don't really have those those uh, those kind of uh, filed reports in the office like we would have in a modern day organization. How about in the Qing? Any good stuff that we remember inside the Forbidden City or just more of the Ming? Well, I mean, let's talk about the eunuchs, for example, because I, I get asked that question a lot by, by students and by people who go there. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the eunuchs, I feel like, is that, of course, Current scholarship, and Melissa Dale wrote a pretty, uh, uh, the scholar Melissa Dale wrote a really good book about the social history of the eunuchs. It was published just a couple of years ago. And one of the things about some of the recent scholarship on eunuchs is to kind of rescue them from the sources. Because the palace, of course, is, all joking aside, the palace is a large bureaucracy. And certain people appear in the bureaucratic records more often than others and for different reasons. And for eunuchs and many of the other sort of staff, you know, sub-imperial staff, if we were, usually only make it into the sources when they're doing something wrong. And as a result, and this kind of bleeds over into popular interpretations uh, of what the kind of how the palace would work. And of course, the eunuchs get a very bad reputation. And to be fair, some of them deserve that, as you've covered in some of your mid to late Ming podcasts. And later on, you know, you've got people like, uh, you know, uh, Xiao Lizi, you know, the uh, famous eunuch, or that's what she used to call him, of uh, the Empress Dowager Cixi, right? So, you know, you have these kind of examples, but I think also scholarship of the eunuchs has, recently has really taken on an interesting turn because we think about as ideas about gender fluidity 
and about representation of gender and discrimination against people who don't necessarily conform to standards of, of gender identity. It's becoming a, it's interesting to reinterpret the history of the eunuchs and their, their, and their lives within this spectrum. I mean, they identified as male, but the way they were treated by people, the way they were seen by people, even people they work with, was such a, uh, was often reflecting beliefs or stereotypes or prejudices against people who did not conform to kind of a binary gender um, uh, paradigm. The other thing, too, uh, about the eunuchs, and this is, I mean, you know, we talk about how these eunuchs get so powerful, but you think about how like a forbidden city works, right? I mean, it's kind of a factory, an incubation chamber for little emperors, right? But who takes care of these kids? Who's actually kind of managing their day-to-day functions? And you think about this, yeah, sure, moms may be involved, but not always. And the other women of the palace might not be your best friends. And dad is probably a pretty remote figure and has, you know, a few dozen other children to kind of look over. But if you're a young prince or princess, but mostly young prince, like if you're a young prince and you're on, you know, the emperor track, but even so, when you're five years old and you wake up from a nightmare, who's the person most likely to be standing there making sure you're okay? You know, who wipes your butt in the morning? Who makes sure you eat your porridge? It's probably a couple of guys with nicknames like, you know, Big Lip Lee and like, you know, Pock Marked Wong. And, and joking aside, when they when these young princes become older and they go to the court for the first time, right, and they're confronted with all the people yelling at them and shouting at them, and the first, you know, the, what's the reaction? Go back to the only people that have ever truly been by your side and ask them, like, so uh, Park Mark Wong, like, what should I do? And most, a good, most eunuchs, the ones we don't hear about in history are like, listen to your officials. They're the ones who know what they're doing. But of course, as you have pointed out in your podcast many times, there are those eunuchs who are like, ah, you've come to the right person. Let me tell you what I should do. Or, you know, I can't be a prime minister, but, you know, I got a brother or I got an uncle, you know, these kind of things. And of course, that's when the rot sets in. And that was in the Ming and then later on in the Qing as well, too, for, for many cases, you know. So whether it's Wei Zhongxian or Li Lianying, I mean, you know, they're, the, the bad eunuchs get recorded in history. The ones who kind of play by the rules, you know, their stories don't get told as often. And that's, that's, a, that's a kind of a shame. Yeah, that was one of the main things I mentioned in that eunuch series I did, which I used uh, Melissa Dale's book a lot, was that, yeah, most of these guys were just plain old working stiffs just clocking in every morning. They did the laundry, they cleaned, they, uh, you know, those were, I don't know if it was 90% or 98%, but it was the overwhelming majority of eunuchs operating in the, in the forbidden city were just small unknown guys. Yeah. And they made the place run. I mean, that was, that was the thing. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's good that, I think it's good that, you know, these days, you know, between your podcast, Melissa Dale scholarship, other recent articles that there were kind of taking the eunuchs away from this you eunuchs kind of attitude and more like, hey, let's look at these as people, <laughs> which, you know, which seemed like a basic, like a basic approach, empathetic approach to studying history. But that's not always been the case. Yeah. What about at the end of the Ming, when uh, Li Zicheng, when he did all his damage, he started his dynasty, didn't he like torch the Forbidden City or do something that really did some lasting damage to it? Or what was the story with him? You know, Lisa Chung's like one of these characters. Like it kind of depends upon where you're studying him because, you know, <laughs> the fact that his Shun or loyalty dynasty doesn't make it out of the crib. Uh, 
I think plays a role in how it's remembered. I'm not necessarily sure that Lisa Chung and his merry band of a merry band of a hundred thousand or so, you know, people so poor they will do anything for food, include following some guy from Shanxi all the way to Beijing. Uh, that they were any more destructive in their overthrow of the capital than many of the early dynastic founders and their followers had been. But you see, he doesn't get to write his own history. So, of course, you know, his destruction is seen like, it was incredible devastation. It was horrible. They were raping and pillaging and burning down palaces. And like, but like the other guys? No, not like the other guys, because they became good emperors. So I think there's part of that. But yeah, the, be, between Lisa Chung and of course, you know, the, the Ming-Qing transition in general. Beijing, as the city itself, went through some pretty profound changes of its urban space, including the palace. There were, weren't a lot of buildings, whether it was deliberate or not, or just, you know, it's war, shit happens. Not a lot of the buildings were, were in good shape when the Manchus took it over. Which, by the way, right, that's kind of weird. Like, you think back to, like, all the earlier dynastic transitions, right, you don't, you usually, you found a dynasty, you have a new capital. You don't just simply like, so what do the last guys use? Is it still available? Is it a fixer-upper? Can we like, you know, it says it have the good bones? Like the fact that the Manchus kind of like walked into the place and like, yeah, we can work with this. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of a, a, a rather unusual moment in the grand sweep of Chinese history. But the Manchus did have to, I mean, the Qing court did have a lot of work to do. And they, they did a lot of, you know, a lot of, that's why a lot of what we see is 17th century and particularly 18th century, you know, the work that the, the Qing court did. And, and they, you know, understanding that one of the roles of a Qing emperor, only one, but one, was to be a good steward of the Chinese political tradition, they did quite a lot of work to kind of rebuild it in a way that conformed to precedent, you know, either in the Ming or earlier precedents for how you know, palaces of a Chinese emperor should be constructed. They added a few things. They did a few things a little differently. There was a one of the back buildings, um, the, the building known as Kuningong, which is the third of the inner palaces. They set up a little altar there that they used to do kind of rituals that were part of their own religious tradition, in terms of sacrificing and, and eating, in some cases, a sacrament of uncooked pork. By the way, part of the same building also uses a honeymoon suite for the emperor and his new bride. So I'm not quite sure how that worked out. Like, oh, yeah, sure. On this side, we cook like, you know, we, we kind of barbecue a little pork until it's kind of like greasy and then we eat it. On this side, however, a lovely place for you to consummate your imperial wedding. But I'm sure they probably did a little cleaning in between. So there were, there were some things that they did differently. But yeah, it is rather remarkable how much the, you know, the Qing emperors kept up the place and, you know, continued a tradition. Was one of them, was Kangxi or Qianlong, anyone that was like the real champion of building? Or, uh, I mean, they had a lot of money in the beginning of the dynasty. They did, uh, thanks in large part to the guy in the middle, like Yongzheng, right? He's the guy who like didn't yeah. spend a lot of money and made all the money. And then, of course, Qianlong, the story is, spent all the money. And as anyone who has walked around Beijing knows, the Qianlong emperor put his architectural mark on many of the places in Beijing that we visit. You know, it's not unusual to see whether it's the Temple of Heaven or the, the imperial residences that we think of as the summer palaces, the, you know, the, the, the palace that exists outside the Great Wall the, at Chengde. A lot of those places you walk around, it's like, you know, originally constructed in 14-something, 15-something, 16-something, but completely renovated by the Qianlong Emperor in 17-whatever. <laughs> and so, yeah, he, he, he more so than almost any other emperor, 
Uh, you know, it's the Qianlong Emperor that gets a lot of the credit for the renovations for many of the buildings that exist in their form into the 20th century. Let's fast forward to uh, after the Qing and Puyi. He got to stay there, but he got kicked out in 1924. What happened to the Forbidden City after the last emperor was ejected? What was it used for? Did people live there? When the Qing Empire ended in 1912, the abdication document that was signed in February 1912, one of the deal, part of the deal was that the young Puyi, who's still you know a kid, gets to live there. And I think the eventual idea was they were going to move him to the Summer Palace at some point. But he, he's allowed to live there, at least in the back half of, the, of the, what became the, we think of as the Forbidden City. And he was there for 12 years. But, you know, those are 12 tumultuous years in, in Chinese history. And there were some attempts by some of the different, we call them warlords, but military, uh, you know, military leaders to try to restore the emperor. In 1917, there's a one of these warlords tries to kind of restore the emperor. Junction. Yeah, Junction. And it led to... <laughs> pigtail general. <laughs> exactly. And it led to the one of the first aerial bombings in uh, Chinese history when a biplane threw a couple of bombs out the side and, of course, it landed in parts of the Forbidden City. But the uh, by the 1920s, the idea of having an emperor in the Forbidden City, I think, for a lot of these people who are vying for power, just seemed like a an unstable situation. And of course, in 1924, he gets, Puyi gets the boot. Not before, of course, you know, selling most of the best of the collection out the back door to like antique dealers and a lot of those antique dealers and selling them to, you know, scholars and academics living in Beijing, who, of course, then bundled it all up and put it in museums around the world. Uh, so after 1920... Oh, but they saved it from the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> yeah, not not a good argument to make at a conference in the Forbidden City these days. Oh, yeah, like, for know, sure. Because, of course... Of course, these days, of course, cultural revolution. I'm sorry, comrade. What are you saying? Um, anyway, the uh, but after that, the the official start date of the Palace Museum, the the, the Palace Opiums Museum, is 1925. And there were earlier versions of this museum or earlier collections that were on display in different parts of the palace where Puyi wasn't living, but they were kind of consolidated in 1925. And so after this, it becomes open as a museum highlighting parts of the collection. And that's where it, it was officially, that's what it remained, I mean, down to the present day. But of course, even you know the, the years before Puyi's eviction were tumultuous, the years after Puyi's eviction were even more so. And the museum, of course, suffered that way as well. I mean, they tried to keep it open. Of course, the 1930s, you know, as Japan was beginning, and I want to use the correct language, approved by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for these kind of historical events. As Japan began its mm -hmm. special military operation against China in the 1930s... I was going to correct you, but... Uh, with the, many of the, the... What was left of the collection... Remember, the, of course, it's not just Puyi. Many of the members of the imperial family, the eunuchs, had been stealing stuff and looting stuff. And, of course, in 1860 and 1900, those nefarious Westerners... Yellow. Uh, when they were occupying Beijing, they also did a, a, an enormous amount of looting of palace items as well. But what was left in the 1930s was boxed up, crated up, and secretly moved out of Beijing. They didn't. They wanted to do it in secret because, of course, the residents of Beijing, if they saw them, you know, carting away the precious, you know, when they start hiding the silverware, you start to think that maybe the place isn't as safe as they're saying it is, and so secretly moved. Uh, I think first to Nanjing, and then of course moved out of Nanjing. Or much of it moved out of Nanjing 
down to other parts of China during uh, during the you know World War II, and of course after 1949, the most of the the crates ended up. Some of them were kind of retaken taken back by the new government, but a lot of the crates ended up in Taiwan. And so you know the, the old joke is that in the divorce, you know, in terms of the you know there's a palace museum in Taiwan, which is a I'll say it. Ugly ass building with a beautiful collection, and in Beijing you've got this beautiful palace with yeah yeah yeah. Who designed that? It looks like it belongs in Disneyland, not in uh, Yangming. I, I always assumed it. I always assumed it was the same like LSD casualty who like designed the campus of the University of California at Davis. In any case, the a lot of the best of the in Beijing you have this beautiful palace without much of the stuff. Although they still have hundreds of thousands of pieces in their collection, a lot of the best stuff is in Taiwan. And so, yeah, the joke is in the divorce, you know, Taiwan got all the furniture, Beijing kept the house. And the challenge has been getting the two museums to, co- to collaborate and cooperate with each other, which happened earlier. You know, when, when China was a much more open place in the uh, golden age of freedom, that was the Hu Jintao era, uh, was it possible to have these kind of collaborations? But of course, recently that's been a much more fraught process. So yeah, today, you know, the Palace Museum, I will say this under the two most recent curators. So first Shan Ji Xiang and now uh, was Wang Shudong. Uh, they have really been very energetic in curating the space, renovating the space, raising it to the standards of kind of international museums around the world, far more so than many other places, other similar sites in China. And, you know, they've done everything from creating some very well curated um, displays and exhibitions of not just the Forbidden Cities collection, but also collections from around China and around the world. But they've also been very successful in bringing this, the palace into the 21st century through virtual reality, through online um, exhibitions. You know, say what you want about the Forbidden City. Uh, and I know a lot of people go there and like, oh, it just looks like a big parking lot. That's true, though I guess you're missing the points. The spaces that matter, not the buildings. But more so than a lot of other places in, in China and in Beijing, they've really done a lot of work keeping that place, uh, making that place a, uh, a educational site for not just Chinese, but also assuming that they're ever let back in, uh, international visitors as well. What about when Mao, you know, after the communists took Beijing, what was the forbidden city to Mao uh, when, and once the PRC was established? Did, I mean, I know, did he move in there or did he move straight into Zhongnanhai or what was, uh, what was the deal? He moved into Zhongnanhai and the forbidden city continued to operate technically with long periods of closures as a museum um, still. Uh, you know, there were attempts to kind of, in the early days of the 1950s, to kind of turn sections of it into like socialist reading rooms, to kind of recast the way the museum was presented or the way the space was presented. But for most of the time that Mao's in Zhongnanhai, it's kind of the derelict house next door that's bringing down the property values of my, of my place. Uh, you know, the, the lot... The Forbidden City was spared a lot of the worst of like the Cultural Revolution. And the credit is usually given to Zhou Enlai. You know, like it often is like, you know, Zhou Enlai was there kind of working behind the scenes to preserve Chinese culture because he was a wise man and all that. And that's I'm sure that's part of it. I also think, though, that in in the center of Beijing, 
most of the people in the party were like, yeah, let's let the Red Guards like burn down like, you know, other cities. But in the middle, right where we live, let's kind of like keep things relatively under control. And I think that benefited the Forbidden City too. Although at one point, this is the story, there was a plan to like rip it down and put a street through it and all kinds of things that never came to pass. And, it, you know, by the 1970s or, you know, when you visit 1980. You know, it had started to come back as an idea of like, oh, wait, when we bring visitors in from other countries to visit Beijing, as they were starting to do in the 70s, you know, this is a place that we can show them like the Great Wall. And so suddenly, not suddenly, but it began a different attitude towards the palace. It was no longer the palace of blood and tears, a feudal relic. It was something that, you know, ideology to be considered, but still something that could be, you know, a demonstration of, you know, Beijing's worth as a global city and that kind of thing. But the challenge was not so much active destruction, but just, you know, what? About 50 or so years or 60 or so years of, you know, neglect, you know, the first 25, you know, benign neglect and the the, the subsequent years, not so benign neglect. And of course, if you have a palace made of wood and all the stuff is just going to start falling apart. I mean, I'd love to know, you know, Laszlo, when you when you visited the first time in the 1980s, I mean, what were the impressions? I mean, you know, I've seen some pictures, but like, you know, there were kind of weeds growing up in places and some of the halls weren't well. Weren't. Oh, it was so run down. When we were in the Taihe Dian, I remember looking, we were standing before that famous throne and the cushion where the emperor sat you know, first of all, they let you get right up to it. And I looked and it was all threadbare and ripped. And the moat was just filled with trash. And I was thinking, gee, this forbidden city. This is like the, the face of the nation. You should take better care of it. But, uh, and, and all those old pictures from the 30s and 40s. I mean, it just looked run down. It, it was just, it was just trashed. Yeah, one thing I tell people today when I take students around or, or to, you know visit these places, yeah, I tell them, a lot of these spaces, these former imperial spaces like the Forbidden City or like the, you know, uh, they haven't looked that good almost ever. But as I say, like even in the height of the imperial period, maybe you know there were often whole sections that were kind of like you know kind of like you close off a wing of the house because you don't want to know what to do with it, and so you know the fact that now every Almost every corner of the palace is either under being researched, being renovated, or being kind of watched is, is, act, is, is a relatively new phenomenon. And of course, part of that is the palace's whole goal of kind of the palace museum's whole goal of like renovating at least most of the space or 95% of the space for the public. I think when you were there in 1980, you could go inside the buildings, which we can't do today. Yeah, we went inside the buildings. But there are probably like the the eastern. There are large sections of the west and eastern sections that were probably at that point still maybe off limits because they were just completely run down. At least that was the case when I arrived in early two thousands. You could kind of walk down the middle. There weren't you know there were a couple of the palaces. There were some places used as galleries, but it was pretty much like you walk down the middle. Those are the clocks. That's the hall of jewelry. Thank you for coming. But now when you go in, there are lots of spaces and new spaces coming online. COVID has slowed this down, but since, you know, since the 2010s, new space is coming online, open to the public for viewing almost every year, which makes going back there, even for those of us who live in Beijing, 
a really kind of fun experience because now it's like, oh, we don't just have to walk down the middle and just see the big ceremonial buildings that were usually empty anyway. Because when do you use your, you know, when do you use the formal living room? But you get to see some of the places where the emperor, empresses, they lived, they actually spent their time. And when you do that, you know, you see the trees and the gardens and the flowers and the smaller spaces and you realize like, oh, okay. So that's what living in the Forbidden City was like. It wasn't just standing in some gigantic courtyard with like this massive building behind them. You know, that was where, you know, the important things happened, but that's not what people, where people were all the time. The other thing too, I just want to add, the Manchus were not a fan of the Forbidden City. So when we talk about living there, living spaces, it's worth noting that at least after the eight, between like the early 18th century, after Yong, especially Qianlong Emperor, uh, and some of his son and his grandson, and uh, up to the, about Xianfeng, uh, the emperors actually spent most of their residential time in the Yuanming Yuan. Like that was where they kind of lived. Uh, this, the Forbidden City was like their version of Buckingham Palace. You know, they went there for the big events. That was the seat of that was the seat of their power. But it wasn't like they preferred strongly to not have to live there. They preferred to be out at the residences that they had built for themselves, which were those imperial gardens that were then, of course, you know, those pesky Westerners again, yellow, that burned them down in 1860 because we are a shockingly depraved group of people. Today, if you go see the Gu Gong, first of all, how much do they charge for any person that wants to get in? Well, the, these days, unlike when you first visited, there's only one price for um, locals and foreigners. It's it's 60 kwai. It's the standard admission with discounts for kids, seniors, and yeah. And uh, beginning with COVID, almost every major site in Beijing and then later in China had us made so that you could not really just, it was difficult to just walk up and buy a ticket. You had to go onto their WeChat or, their, or maybe their website, they had one, and reserve through your ID card. Or if you were lucky, they might have an option for passport. And of course, this caused all kinds of wacky hilarity in places like the Summer Palace. I had no earthly idea how to do this. So there was a lot, it was became very difficult for of a lot of the sites to kind of come to this, to kind of go to this pre-reservation system. The one place that, that sailed right into it, of course, was the Forbidden City, the Palace Museum, because they had gone, even before COVID, they realized that 150,000 people tramping through the emperor's quarters each day was unsustainable. So I can't remember exactly the year. I want to say it's like 2015, maybe even a little earlier. They had set a policy where they would cap the number of tickets at 80,000 per day. Now, of course, as you know, in the PRC, anytime you say cap and number of tickets, the first thing you have are like scalpers poking their heads up out of the ground like meerkats. Like, And so to, to combat the scalpers, the Forbidden City was one of the first sites in China to go to a real name registration system where you had to reserve or at least buy your ticket with a passport or ID. So as a result, they have a very good system in place where whenever I want to go there, I go onto their WeChat or their official WeChat account or I go online, I fill out my passport number, my name, and then they give they, they the reservation is automatically in a system. I show up and now of course I got to go through like 90 like, you know, different temperature checks and things like that. But I get to the gate, I show them my passport, they look it up and they type in the passport number and they're like, "Okay, yeah, you get a reservation, walk right in." If you've got a Chinese ID card, you just swipe it and it just scans it and you go right in. So it's a pretty 
simple experience. The problem is going to come, though, that most of the site is in Chinese and you can only pay for it using like Alipay and WeChat. There's no credit card option. So, again, I, I don't know what the plan is for letting foreign tourists back into China. I mean, again, the last time they closed the country to foreign tourists, they reopened it after 26 years. So maybe this is kind of a down the road timetable. But I'm not quite sure when people do come back, like, you know, mom and pop from Iowa, when they want to go see the Forbidden City and they get there and they're like, oh, great. So use our official WeChat account and use your, you know, WeChat pay to buy your ticket according to your passport. And yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. Like a lot, like a lot of things in China right now, Lazo. I'm not sure what the plan is going forward. And I get the sad feeling that I'm not alone in my mystification. I think that includes quite a few people who are actually in charge of making those plans. Yeah, I think between the supply and demand, I don't think <laughs> yeah. the uh, Google needs needs these foreigners and their money. Oh, they they absolutely absolutely do not. I mean, that's that's another thing too. I mean, a lot of they have done for the Palace Museum has done some really good work with their captions. They're kind of the, the historic markers explaining what everything is way better than many other sites in China, which usually like you know. Like, this is jade. You know, they have really good kind of explanations of what these are. And they've, they've, they've updated the translations in the last couple of years with yeah. the help of actually using foreign scholars to check the translations. Imagine that. Oh, I always recommend that. Yeah, you think. But it doesn't always happen. But the one thing about it is, you know, a lot of people do ask me, like, why is it not, why is it not very friendly for international travelers? Like, again, the, the reservation system is cumbersome. There are better captions and better descriptions in Chinese. You would think that going to like, you know, the Louvre and, you know, the, the French aren't known for their, let's say, um, empathy for people who don't speak French. But you can enjoy it if you are not a Francophone. It's a little more difficult at the Forbidden City. And, of course, the reason mm. why is that at least today, and this is different. I'm sure this is very different when you went first there and even when I first went there. Pre-COVID, this is all pre-COVID, you know, 98, 99 out of every 100 people who walk through the door of the Forbidden City every day were from other parts of China. And that's the, that's the tourism economy here. It's all, it's all facing domestically. So sites, museums, everything is set up with the mentality of how do we cater to the domestic market and what do these people know and how do we present the information to them based on their background information it doesn't necessarily always or if it does it's an afterthought take into account how do we present this information how do we present this in a meaningful way to people who don't come from a chinese cultural or linguistic background and i think you know that's not something that's going to go away as you said i even when china lifts its restrictions and people are free to travel to china you know i think the Beijing Tourism Board is going to be kind of surprised by the number of people who are like, yeah, that's great. Um, sure. Well, I'll, I'll check you guys out. No, wait, I'm going to mingle a little bit. You know, Thailand's kind of calling in Malaysia. You know, I'm going to mingle, but I'll, I'll circle back to you, man. I'll be at the bar. You know, and I, I think they're going to be kind of surprised at how few people are, how much interest has kind of dropped, or at least it's different than it would have been pre-COVID. We'll see. We'll see. When when you go in today, is the whole thing open or is like large parts of it cut off? Most of it should be. Uh, there's a lot of weird rules right now because of the COVID uh, pandemic. So like some of the spaces that would ordinarily be open, um, like for example, up until COVID, you could actually on the 
eastern side of the palace. You could walk on the, the actual wall of the Forbidden City from the, op- the front gate, right? The Meridian Gate. You could walk along the east gate pa- through the guard towers all the way around to the very back gate, the, the, the Shenwu Man. You couldn't do that on the western side because that gives you a nice view of the pool in the Zhongnanhai regime compound. But on the eastern side, you could. And there's, thing, there's things like that that have been opened as part of this uh, renovation and rehabilitation plan. But some of those things aren't open right now because, you know, COVID, um, as everybody knows. If yeah, So if we were to go, it, assuming that at some point the COVID restrictions are lifted on sites in Beijing, which is a pretty huge assumption, uh, if we were to go there in a year or two, or 10, then we would, your visit from 1980 would, your visit today would look very different from 1980 in the number of places you could see, the number of parts of the palace you could explore, even the number of rooms that you go into. You can't go into the Hall of Supreme Harmony anymore, but you could go into the the um, the, the hall that's on top of the gate it's over the you know the front gate, the Meridian Gate. You could stand there, you know, looking down into that courtyard, you know, as the emperor would on special occasions, and see, you know, uh, assemblies of his military officials or civilian officials, things like that. So that view is open, uh, and other view, similar views are also available too. And what about where where Mao stood at Tiananmen, where Mao stood and said, uh, you know, his famous words. I got to go up there and see that because you could pay extra. You could pay an arm and a leg to go see it, and I did it. Is that still open? It has been in the past. Uh, everything is pre-COVID, Laszlo. So it's uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, it was in the past. It, it's been separated. As I remember the last time I did that, it's separated from the Forbidden City a little bit. Like it has its own kind of management system yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, but it was available. And what the, the pretext for this is that those halls – at the top of the gates are used as exhibition spaces. So when I would go up to the top of Meridian Gate, for example, it would be because I was going to see the exhibition of the jade, but really I would just kind of skip the exhibition and kind of take a look, take in the view. And with uh, the Tiananmen Gate, that was also being at that at, until it was shuttered. And I, I'm trying to think the last time I was there because with Tiananmen these days too, it is very, it's very, it's much more controlled than it was, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. So a lot of the places that ordinarily were very easy to visit 10 years ago, 15 years ago, are now completely off limits. That's something that's always mm. you know, part of the equation. What was What's the gate on the east side near the front? Is that the Donghua, Donghua Men? Donghua Men, yeah. That's, that's now the exit. Oh, that's the exit? Well, I, I was on a business trip once in Beijing. I think this is in like 2000 or 2001. And I was walking around with, a, with this colleague of mine, and we were walking down there, and the door was open to that gate. And so we crossed over the bridge, over the moat. You know, we sort of looked inside. <laughs> there was nobody there. So we just, this was like 1030 at night. So we just walked into the Forbidden City by ourselves. And, you know, we, we didn't go all the way in. I mean, we just sort of went inside, and it's sort of like a garden area right there when when we walked in we just sort of sat down and uh you know this guy he's smoking a couple cigarettes i said man don't burn down the forbidden city and uh so we just sort of hung out there for like about a half hour 40 minutes had the whole place to ourselves, and then i mean finally somebody saw us and said you know get the hell out of here but yeah that was wild 
Um, gee, what else? I mean, this is like the uh, fastest hour I've experienced in a long time. I'm going to now going to officially tick this topic off the old proverbial list of CHP topics. So to tell you I'm thankful does not do that adjective justice, if you'll permit me to use the G word, ganshieni. So I'm so happy you fit me in. I know it's early there in uh, Beijing. So what are you up to these days besides barbarians at the gate and Beijing by foot? What, uh, what's, what's going on in Jeremiah Jenny land? Well, my chosen profession of educating study abroad students is a little bit on hold because we don't have too many study abroad students. But I am very busy with Beijing by Foot, which is a company that I or a brand that I manage, which is, you know, historic walks and educational programs in the city. I've been very busy actually working with uh, groups of people who are already here in Beijing, whether it's embassies or companies doing lectures on Chinese history and workshops on historical topics, a lot of interest, which is always which is always very cool. Uh, Barbarians at the Gate is a podcast that I, I, I work with on with my good friend David Moser. We're keeping busy with that. I also have been working with a lot of groups who are already here in China, uh, whether they're embassies, companies, community groups. I, I lead a lot of trips, not just around Beijing, but also I, I'm often accompanying groups to other parts of China as kind of the trip historian. You know, my, when my mom, when I was a kid, my mom's like, you know, there's no such job as like a professional know-it-all. Would you just shut up? And like, I'm like, yeah, look at me now, mom. That's officially my job, actually. Uh, so that it's been, it's been keeping busy. And at some point I would like to, you know, maybe go somewhere that's not China because I would like to see my family. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a hot summer. It's been a crazy summer. I think it's uh, in recent events may make it even crazier, but you know, we're, we're good. We're safe. We're, here in Beijing, and we're feeling well protected in the uh, zero COVID bubble of excellence or whatever we're now choosing to call it. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, it's going to take like an Ebola outbreak to get people to March of 2020. I, I People don't even wear masks here in crowded places. It's completely back to normal and has been for a while. Yeah. Well, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, a, it'll be a minute before that happens here that's, that's the only thing i can that's the only safe prediction i can make I, i'm not sure what's going to happen next but it's, it's going to be a minute before it happens because of course we've got some events coming up this year that are going to kind of put on hold any major decisions what's going on any big meetings or anything happening i i, I i'm told that uh there's there's a couple of big meetings coming up and maybe a coronation or two and uh Hey, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens when our uh, the the people's leader ascends to a whole new plane of people's leadership. Well, I hope I can invite you back to talk about something else one day. I would love give it. me a discount this time. Oh, you know, I, my my people are pretty are are pretty ruthless. Uh, you know, I I bring him in from Hunan just for the purposes of working over anyone oh, who wants no to wonder. talk to me. Yeah, and so, uh, but. Next time, you know what? I am such a fan. I, I can't believe they, they actually made you sign all of those NDAs and things like that. But the next time, because I am such a fan, I'll be happy to do this absolutely for free. We can talk about anything you want as long as it's something that I know something about. Because, of course, your literally encyclopedic knowledge of the uh, whole ovoir of Chinese history is so broad and so vast. And I just focus on, you know, this... One small town of 25 million people, and of course, a later period, but I'm happy to talk about anything involving that uh, intersection of knowledge. All right. 
let's uh, leave it at that. This is Laszlo Montgomery here with the famous Jeremiah Jenny coming to us early in the morning from Beijing and the PRC. I thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll all think it over and join me next time for another exciting episode of that China History Podcast.